Welcome to the Swamplex Podcast, where we go through what's new and hot on the Criterion channel week to week. <laughs> <laughs> Formerly, uh, we would go through what's new and hot on Tubi, but we've already gone through everything in their entire library, and now we're moving on up to Criterion. Everything that I watched between the last recording and this, other than our main topic, I watched on Tubi. <laughs> okay, we are still keeping it real. So, yeah. <laughs> just as a heads up. We're still a pod of the people at heart. Even if we have aspirations that are a little loftier. Are they loftier? I don't know. We do try to find like the uh, most provocative selections in the Criterion channel, but uh, we yeah. have been dwelling there a lot lately. I'm very excited about this one. But yeah, yeah. who are you? Yeah. Who am I? Who are yes. you? Uh, my name is Brandon Lede. I write movie reviews on Swampflix.com. And I also talk to y'all on this microphone. And some of y'all also write for the website. Yeah. And I'm Boomer. <laughs> and I'm Allie. Hi. <laughs> Every podcast is going to be somebody's first. And yeah. um, we just I just wanted to make sure we said our names for, for branding purposes or Brandon purposes. There is a podcast that I listen to where it's just two men. I don't know what either of their names are or which one is which. I couldn't tell you which one held what opinion about Buffy. And I can't tell you the name of which one finds Dr. Crusher really hot. And I can't tell you the name of the one who finds Dr. Crusher not hot at all. Uh, they're wrong, but okay. They are wrong. I mean, I guess we could refer to them as um, man with taste and lunatic. Yes. It is very important to know who has the better takes, I think. That's the only yeah. reason you should know your podcasters by name. Yeah. You should keep a mental tally of who is uh, on track with the right takes. It's true. Yeah, I, I would love to have like a portrait of June Diane Raphael as like um, the the Madonna to hang above my bed. <laughs> <laughs> well, Allie, have you also been dwelling on Tubi since we last recorded? I have not. I've been dwelling on uh, library rentals, checkouts. Ooh, me too. Holds. Loans. That's the word. I had to go through the whole vocabulary there. And this week, uh, the one I chose to watch is Strawberry Mansion from last year. Great film. Yeah! So, Strawberry Mansion made our top of last year, right? That's a good question. It was on my personal list. Yeah. I don't know that any, enough people watched it for it to make oh, okay. the cut. Yeah, that must be what I was <laughs> thinking of. Anyway, it's about in the future of 2035 um our dreams become taxable we our main character is uh mr preble he's an auditor for tax dreams he goes to audit this elderly woman named bella and she's a quirky artist mess of a lady she's great and all of her Dreams are on VHS tapes, like thousands of them. And so he begins to audit the tapes. And through that, he comes charmed by her older self and enamored of her younger self. And then the older Bella reveals that there have been ads being broadcast to dreams. And this kind of just like changes his world. And of course, the price of uh, knowing such knowledge is. Uh, life-threatening danger so he's he and dream bella are chased through dreams by wolf-faced men blue demons and the like i really really enjoyed it i thought for like premise that is honestly horrifying yeah <laughs> it uh did a really good job of even when it was like uncomfortable still being like its own like whimsical 
twee self, um, not going like straight into Cronenberg disgustingness. It's much more Michelle Gondry than Cronenberg. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Like it could have easily gone in that direction, um, but instead, you know, we get we get another intro treat in our tweenaissance. Well, also the second major twee movie of last year that um, was about tax audits. I know. <laughs> Isn't that great that yeah. two like really twee bizarre movies were both about taxes? It's great, wonderful, love it. But yeah, we we had everything everywhere in our top ten, and we had Marcel the Shell, but uh, Strawberry uh, Mansion yeah. did not make the cut. It was yeah. a much smaller film. Like I think uh, when I saw it in the theater, it was literally just me and Cece in an empty room. It was a very good movie though. Yeah, and you know, also that Dan Deacon soundtrack. Oh hell yeah! I think that's probably I'm what excited. got me out of my house in the first place. Oh for sure. what? Yeah. Why didn't you yeah. tell me about that part? I would have. We would. It Do been not on. make me roll back the tape for when I brought this yes, up on the air last say. summer. <laughs> Do not make me roll back the tape where I have said over and over again, when we do these, I am in a fugue state. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to, once I, you know, finally am able to like see a neurologist or something, you know, I'm going to bring, I'm going to make them listen to the podcast. They can like chart the degeneration of like my (laughs) attentiveness in real time. Uh, yeah, so that is what I watched this week. Um, Boomer, have you been watching anything cool? I guess for a certain definition of cool, you could say so. <laughs> I um, About not very long after we recorded last, actually the next day, it was a Tuesday and I had left my uh, schedule open because we had some people in from out of town and I kind of assumed that maybe we would all go out and then they had partied too much and were still recovering. So nobody wanted to do anything on Tuesday. Uh, other friends were in the middle of finals or were spending time with their partners. And I was like, well, I guess I'll go see a Marvel. <laughs> like, I, you know, Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy is out. I have a movie pass. It doesn't cost me anything. And it's always good, you know, content. I don't know what our numbers are exactly, but I feel like, you know, writing up a Guardians of the Galaxy uh, film review very shortly after its release probably does something for us. Uh, not as much as adulterers, apparently, but you know, <laughs> I guess it does something. Um, I did a full review of that. It's been posted to the site. You can check that out for my full thoughts. But in brief, you know, I, I liked it. Um, it. It made me feel kind of blue. Like, I have this binary idea of how finales work, right? Like every TV series finale, and in this case, I mean, we should be talking about this entire franchise more as if it were a television program than like a series of films, especially maybe not in the first few years, but over time, it's definitely become more of a mini series where the episodes are just really, really long. Aren't some of the episodes also now actually television where like... A lot of what I heard in the lead up to this movie was like, oh, you have to watch the holiday special that went straight to Disney Plus to understand where this character fits in. And that's where I tap out. I'm like, no, I can't have to have watched 30 movies and a Disney Plus special. The thing is, you know, they've had TV series as part of this franchise for a while now. Like they had the Jessica Jones series like eight years ago. Yeah, but and Daredevil around that they, time too. But I they weren't that didn't like like tie in. They initially they were supposed to, and they kind of hint at it. And then once like the Disney Marvel merger was completed, they were like uh, less so now because we don't directly own those. Like Disney wasn't like we don't directly own those television programs, so we're not really going to consider them as important. 
But, you know, like in this first season of She-Hulk, which is part of like the Disney Marvel canon, Daredevil was like a recurring character yeah. towards the end of the season with the same actor. So, uh, oh, okay. you know, what's canon, what's not? I am pers- a person who grew up where I loved Star Trek based on the movies mostly and seeing TNG, you know, in syndication in the afternoons. But most of my exposure to what Star Trek material was, was the extended universe. Like it is for a lot of people, I think, before the rise of the internet, where you mostly got your content from, you know, you could check out uh, all of the like franchise books from the library or whatever local library, your lo- whatever your local library had, you know, if you wanted to read Peter David's New Frontier series or whatever. So when I, as a person who basically was primed from my childhood to be like, yes, you have to watch everything and know everything to get every reference. I uh, don't enjoy that about this franchise. And I also feel like for the most part, you don't need to. I did not watch that holiday special. I guess the thing is that um, Mantis is uh, Peter Quill's like half sibling is the thing that was introduced in that holiday special. But also like, I I thought we already knew that because they were both like uh, ego. Oh my God. I don't want to relate. I don't want to get into it. I'll just say, look, everything feels real final right now where it's the end of days, you know, empires last 250 years. uh, And unlike previous empires, the American empire and the West in general has done such damage to our, (laughs) our (laughs) climosphere that you know uh, unlike the roman empire when it collapsed it didn't uh, bring about the end of the world and we are so mm, there's that and uh yeah things feel very final this movie feels very final my i guess my binary to circle back after all this stuff that um brandon's going to cut out is that this is sort of like the finale of a certain segment of this franchise like one of the you know shows that branched off from the main show we'll call it and for me all finales are either the adventure continues or the other option, which is everybody goes their separate ways. And I guess, you know, the third option could be everybody dies, but they don't usually do that in contemporary media. That's pretty limited to like the Greeks and Shakespeare. But uh, this is sort of a hybrid. There is definitely some like mm, breaking of the fellowship as well as a little bit for some people or some characters, you know, the adventure is continuing, but not in a way that we're ever going to see. And even though, for me, I can recognize when a uh, finale of something and it takes the form of a everybody goes their separate ways. I can I, I often know that that is the correct narrative choice, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't bum me out. And that it did a little bit this time. Um, there are parts in this that people seem to be really moved by that I, I think are kind of uh, bathos, like bathetic. There's an awful lot of like cutesy CGI animals, and some of them are cutesy CGI people, and they meet harrowing ends. They get the Sarah McLaughlin treatment. Yeah, but it's there's something about it where, for me, as someone who's watched James Gunn's stuff before, it feels like it's supposed to be kind of making fun of that, especially because you know it's it when you're watching the. You know, when you're at your grandparents' house and the TV is on and the Sarah McLaughlin commercial comes on, that's like real stuff that happens to animals. And it's bleak and sad where this is all kind of like CGI creatures, which if you look at his previous body of work where you've got Slither or you've even got like that recent Suicide Squad sequel, like there's not a lot of sentimentality to it. 
And this movie feels sentimental in a way that I find to be kind of making fun of that conceptually because it's through the, like, I don't want to spoil anything for people who want to see this movie, but like, it really is. It's like, imagine if you're watching a television show and they set up like a land of um, cutesy bunny, bunny uh, creatures. Right. And then immediately just had like a harrowing forest fire, kill them all. Like it feels like it's set up like that, where it's kind of a joke. Like an old South Park episode or something. Yeah. I mean, you know, I hate that show, but <laughs> I think that you're correct. Yeah. But they would I, show I'm... like, you know, cutesy, like Fleischer cartoon animals, and then they would be evil or get, you know, yes. murdered or something. Yeah. Yes. And it, it feels like that. And people seem to be taking it really sincerely. And it makes me wonder if I'm out of touch or if they are. Um, it doesn't, I mean, it still manages to be, uh, there were moments that definitely touched me, but I don't, uh, I, I don't know how much of this movie is supposed to be taken seriously and how much people are taking it seriously just because it's in this franchise. When I think, you know, when you talk about the director of Slither, it feels like it should be more of a parody to me, but I don't know. Maybe he just managed to make something that, um, it's like a, uh, you know, the three blind men and the elephant. Where like I'm, I'm like, oh, it's a snake because I'm touching the trunk, <laughs> and you know somebody else is like, no, no, it's a tree because they're touching the leg. Like I don't know, maybe he managed <laughs> to make an elephant, and everybody's seeing what they want to see, and and isn't that I, I don't know, that's the mark of an artist, right? Um, but I don't want to say any more about that. You can read my review if you want to hear more uh, or read more. I'll briefly touch on another movie that I watched uh, that is called Ed and His Dead Mother. It wasn't very good. It's a Bob Balaban. Or no, it's not. It's um, my other thing that I want to talk about is a Bob Balaban, but it feels like that. And it just very much feels like it feels very 1993. Um, this is a movie that if you're like, you know, staying at a hotel that only has antenna and Tubi, and maybe this is what you watch on Tubi, or if it's coming over <laughs> the air on your local like CW station and on a Saturday afternoon, if that's still how things work in television, I don't know. Um, maybe give it a shot. There are a lot of really fun bits in it. Um, one of the things that it did remind me of was uh, Step Monster, which we talked about um, not terribly long ago uh, for a movie of the month. And it's it actually has one very specific similar element. And it wasn't just this, but this is present, which is somebody perving with a telescope on their neighbor. Oh, my God. In Ed and His Dead Mother, it's... it's uh, by the way, Ed is... I guess I should explain what this movie is about. I, I always forget to do this. Uh, Steve Buscemi is uh, Mama's boy. His uh, mother has been dead for a year. He runs the hardware company that she left to him. And he lives with his Uncle Benny, Ned Beatty, who is a pervert, who watches the next door neighbor, played by uh, Sam Sorbo, um, as she, like, undresses. However, unlike Step Monster, it's very clear that she's, like, doing this intentionally. Like, she does a little striptease dance for him, which makes it somewhat less creepy. But these are both pg-13 movies from 1993 that have that as an element and there's there's a bunch of like very um this and my boyfriend's back and step monster all kind of feel like american pie for kids but with a like supernatural element yeah it's from that like video store era where like even r-rated movies for like companies like full moon felt like they were made for children like they have like saturday morning tv aesthetics uh even if sometimes they have like titties and blood i'm not sure i'm not saying this one does but like 
There was like a video store cable TV era where like parents yeah. weren't really monitoring stuff and it was being marketed to kids, uh, even if it was like technically above their age range. Yeah, there's a lot of nudity in this movie for a PG-13. <laughs> like, there's, a, there's an awful lot of nudity in it for, for a movie that like you could rent in the eighth grade, you know, That's without your funny. parents' permission. Um John Glover is in it, and he plays the salesman who comes to Ed with the offer to bring his mother back from the dead. Not back to life. That's a very specific distinction that the film makes, but he brings her back from the dead. And then it becomes this sort of like, it's more of a sitcom than a film where uh, she comes back mostly right, but not completely. And then they have to keep uh, the fact that she's no longer dead from certain groups of people and Anyway, uh, I, I don't recommend it um, unless you have um, almost no other choice. Uh, but I, I, you can read my full review. And then uh, in conclusion, I did watch a Bob Balaban movie entitled Parents. Oh, an absolute masterpiece titled Parents. Did I send you copy on that? No, um, we did it on the podcast a couple years ago. We talked about Gosford Park and Bob Balaban came up with the idea for that movie and kind of broke the story for it. And I was like, well, here's what you would expect Bob Balaban to do is to write this movie. But he actually like when he was off on his own directing films for himself, he made these like two over the top horror comedies. So we, we paired parents and my boyfriend's back with Gosser Park on the pod. Okay. Hmm. And parents was like the main inspiration why I wanted to do that episode was to share it with other people. Cause I thought it was like, one of the best movies I've seen in a long time. It's great. It really is. Um, it's strange. It's a lot of fun. It's really messed up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So parents, Bob Balaban, it's a movie about a little boy who uh, moves with his parents from um, somewhere in the Northeast to California. He starts a new school and he's just kind of starting to become aware of the inner lives of adults and you know that there is a world of adulthood that does not uh neither explains itself to children nor exists for children Uh, essentially um it is kind of a a parable in which he discovers his father played by randy quaid is a cannibal but it plays out in a very strange way where for large portions of it you're not entirely sure if that's what's correct or if it's just a child misunderstanding the world of adults like very particularly and specifically one night he has a nightmare and gets out of bed and catches his parents downstairs in the living room having sex and he interprets what he sees as his father like biting his mother and that plays into his larger fears and his beliefs that like the the meat that the family is consuming um, that his father brings home is not like what we would normally consider um, appropriate meat, that it's that it's humans. <laughs> and so it's really fascinating because it's something that is not very frequently discussed in film or in media and will probably be even less so given the current state of things. But like for many, you know, centuries, children were aware of like what their parents did. Because people lived in caves and then like one room structures. And so there is sort of this like 20th century American idea that children should not know anything about their bodies, that they should not have a concept 
you know, there are many cultures outside of the West where there are large like bathhouse societies and communities and cultures, which, you know, I've read uh, from people who grew up within those communities and cultures that like it actually helped them with their body image issues because they knew from a very early age what a body will look like as it grows older, what it will, the various different ways that bodies can look and that they're all valid, right? But with the rise of like, uh, you know, the post-war uh, the need to have multiple rooms, you know, a, a very strict division between what children do and don't know about the world. It does create, and, and it's very telling that this film is set in the 50s uh, as part of that, where this child is just, no one will explain anything to him. They just expect him to sit down, shut up, and eat what he's given, like consume what he is given by society and by his father without questioning it and without ever turning away from it uh, or rejecting it. And so it creates this like rage in his father that he refuses to, you know, uh, become a cannibal like he is as well. So um, unlike Raw, which (laughs) is played for horror, uh, this is kind of played for comedy where, you know, uh, cannibalism is kind of this like it's, it's part of adulthood in the way that like sexuality is an adulthood thing that people don't talk about anymore that they keep it in the basement in a freezer now that it's the fifties and they want to, you know, raise good God fearing Donna Reed watching children. So I thought that was really fascinating and it's really funny. There's a lot of really great horror sequences in it for something that is like a comedy, but yeah, um, I would definitely recommend that one. If you're watching it on Tubi and you let it autoplay, it will play Ed and his dead mother though. So be careful. (laughs) So, Brandon, what have you been watching? I also got some movies from the library in the past week. Um, and one of them was also a superhero movie from this year. I watched a couple of new releases on Hoopla. This one is called Freaks vs. the Reich. It's an Italian film that I've been wanting to see for years. And it was originally titled Freaks Out when it was on the festival circuit. And it got rebranded in America. I guess it's good for them to change the title so that you know that you will have to look at a lot of Nazi imagery in the film, which I guess the title freaks out, does not warn you about. But, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, like, superhero fatigue lately. Uh, how post-Endgame, it doesn't feel like there's much appetite for superhero stuff the way there used to be. But right. the industry is going to take years to adjust to that. So we still have to deal with it, like, eating up so much screen space. And, like, I have even soured on other IP that would normally wouldn't exhaust me, but, like, like the 10th Fast and Furious movie, that feels like a superhero film to me, even though it's not technically. Or, like, uh, the Super Mario Brothers movie looks like animated superhero media to me. Chris Pratt of that does not help. Yeah, he does not. <laughs> he is around a lot. His voice is inescapable, if nothing else. Oh, yeah. Uh, so this is at least... If we're going to only tell this type of story over and over again, this Italian um, fascism story set during Nazi occupation, you know, at least it's a different angle. The titular freaks are a circus sideshow, and you're introduced to these, like, super-powered sideshow freaks one at a time. Like, one is a ballerina who has like electricity in her body and like lights up light bulbs when you put them in her mouth or she touches them with her bare hand or uh one is like a real life wolf man with a gigantic you know strength 
And uh, one is a dwarf who's basically a magnet and can control metal with his body. Uh, so, you know, it, it is kind of like an X-Men assemblage of, like, different abilities. But they're in this, like, World War II-era circus sideshow. Uh, their tent is bombed. Their leader is shipped off, presumably, to a concentration camp in the chaos. And the freaks are disassembled and have to, like, find their way back together to take down the Nazis in this big, you know, superhero battle in an open field at the end, the way that all those movies kind of end. One interesting thing, I think, in this context, where I thought I was, I was maybe overthinking it a little bit as, like, a superhero film, but, like, the main evil Nazi supervillain is huffing large amounts of ether and time-traveling into the future uh, to get visions of how to win the war for Hitler. And he, uh, you know, comes back with all these, like, mad sketches of PlayStation remotes and smartphones and things that, you know, he couldn't possibly know about. But another thing he comes back with are these, like, old-timey orchestrations of modern pop songs. And the two big ones that they, like, splurged on were Sweet Child of Mine and also Creep by Radiohead, which I have not seen Guardians of the Galaxy 3, but I hear plays a major role in that one's like mixtape of modern pop tunes. Yeah. So just like fortuitous timing that this uh, Italian superhero film uh, came out around the same time the Guardians did with the same needle drop, but I think does much weirder, less expected things with it. So I don't know if you have any affection for that kind of like Jean-Pierre Genet style of like, you know, steampunk circus uh, acts and like, uh, you know, just kind of grimy lived in feel. I really liked that Pinocchio live action adaptation from a few years ago. It has kind of that uh, production design to it. I've been meaning to watch that one. So it's very good. Yeah, it's it's Tale of Tale guy, right? Tale of Tale. Yep. That's his his name. Uh, Yeah, Matteo Garone or something like that. I'm sure if you were Italian that the sounds I just made with my mouth were offensive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also watched a slasher on there from the, from this year called Candyland that I liked a lot. Uh, it's also set in the past, but it's set in the 1990s. It is a kind of low-key hangout drama about these truck stop sex workers. They call it themselves lot lizards. Basically, they just hang out at this corner store waiting for truckers to come through and signal them to get in the cab for transactional sex. And also there is a nearby cult that comes by and tries to convert them to their fundamentalist Christianity. And one of the members from the cult escapes to their truck stop and starts to join in their profession. And there's a lot of tension and like how she's being taken advantage of, or maybe not revealing the full scope of why she left or how she left. And then about, you know, halfway into the movie, it starts turning into this like body count slasher film um, and becomes a lot more like rigidly genre, like formulaic. And to me, it was kind of like impressive that this director probably wanted and couldn't get funded for this, like kind of Sean Baker style, low key hangout dramedy about, sex workers kind of just like doing their thing. You learn all the lingo and how they like um, signal to each other and to clients, like where to go and what to do. And then it's like, well, I also have to pay the bills. So I'm going to like turn this into a horror movie so I can sell it. 
you know, the slasher aspect of it was also satisfying, but like it was more just like impressive to me and like a um a money move, like a business decision to like uh get your film funded with some like genre goods um and still not abandon entirely the like character drama of these women's work. Yeah, I thought that was very good as well. And then I also got speaking of sex workers uh through uh the library on DVD Magic Mike's Last Dance, which Boomer gave a glowing review of earlier in the year. And uh, how did you feel about it? Apparently, I, I want to preface this by saying I've been seeing a lot of reviews for it lately that call it terrible, but I do want to hear what you say. I would say the reception was mixed, and I expected to actually not like it at all. And I thought it was cute. I thought it was like kind of a dorky, wholesome throwback to old-fashioned rom-coms. Like, you can kind of picture... Cary Grant in Mike's position where he gets like swept up by a wealthy heiress to a European country and has to like save a theater before it goes under. You know, it has like a very like old timey chaste feel to it. Um, except that there's a lot of like abs out and crotches grinding, dry humping women in the crowd, uh, the way you would expect in a magic Mike movie. Um, and also the other half of that cuteness and that dorkiness is that it's narrated like a high school term paper on the cultural importance of dance through the ages it sure uh, is which is very it sure funny. Is. <laughs> so i don't know i i have like high standards for this series because i thought the first two were very like smart and meaningful movies in a way that i don't know that this one necessarily is this one's just like a charming old-fashioned rom-com that has some of the like the sexier dance um sequences from the first ones from the first two kind of reintroduced into that old-timey formula. So yeah, I had, I had a better time with it than I expected, based on maybe some of the more volatilely uh, negative reviews. <laughs> but uh, I, I wouldn't say it like transcends like the second one does, or that it has as like grim of a outlook on the American economy as the first one does. Yeah, it's really interesting that the first one is is much more like it was. It was the one that was marketed the most as like you and your girls come see this movie. Um, right. which me and my girls did no um but we did and it's not it, it, it is sexy when it's sexy but it's mostly very bleak it's it's you know uh it's mostly just about how people never can escape from um the cycles of like poverty and like self-sabotage that they put themselves through and that even if you're managed to like not sabotage yourself it doesn't mean that your life is actually going to improve in any measurable way like it's not it's a bleak movie even this one, I would say, doesn't drop that entirely. Like, a lot of the humor is class differences and, like, Mike agreeing to do whatever this heiress boss tells him to do because she holds the money and the power. Yeah. This one is m very clearly more Soderbergh and that it does have that connection to the first movie, although this one's a little more positive, you know, because he does decide that he wants to give her whatever she wants. And what she wants isn't really that outlandish either. It's It's not like what would happen with, like, you know, it, uh, people who uh, perform sex work in this country and in this world are, are not uh, nearly treated as well as Mike is in this movie. That's not normally how it works at all. No. Whereas the second one, I don't know, I just couldn't connect with it as much. That one feels almost like um, a series of like webisode vignettes between the first one and the second one to me. 
and that these two are more conceptually and thematically similar. It's just that it's like, mm, let's give this trilogy a happy ending instead of like, you know, leaving it where we left it. Dude, to me, the second one's like high art. <laughs> it's like shot so beautifully and really dives into like the fantasy that uh, the first one promised but didn't deliver. It was like, well, you know, you wanted you wanted the uh, pure escapism. Um, here it is. I think that that's fair and I think that that's accurate, but... I also think it's very funny that like the the men in this movie are not credited. Like the oh. first two are about very specific like, like like men who are part of this like Mike's friend group, whereas many of the dancers in this one uh, they don't even have like IMDb photos. Like it's just it is pure like here's what you want. It's a romance. Uh, it's narrated by you know I get like this uh, high schooler talking about dance like you said, and then also here's just a lot of like horny grinding from men who you don't have to worry about what their names are or their past or what kind of baggage they're dragging around. Just enjoy the show. There's maybe six characters with like dialogue in the whole movie. It's a very small production and you can feel if it, if it has like a Soderbergh touch to it, he's always somebody who is willing and even like excited to adapt to new formats and new challenges in Hollywood. And like, yeah. this is very much a COVID production for him where he's like, what can I do with a small crew um, and limited funds and a quick succession? And like this movie, if it were to give all of those dancers speaking roles, it would have to pay them a higher rate uh, based on like SAG union rules. Well, they all say lines. They don't have like extensive dialogue, but they're uh, not extras. They, a lot of them don't even talk. <laughs> they're just there i guess you're right like there are many dancers that like get to talk in that montage sequence but then there are some that they just pick up on the street and you're, you're right now that i think about it there's also like the way he shoots it is very odd um in that the interiors and these like old london theaters and old london apartments it makes sense that he would shoot in this like super wide angle like almost that bubble look he had for no sudden move on hbo max a few i mean it was probably during COVID as well. Um, that makes sense because it makes the room look bigger to shoot in those like fish islands framing, but he shoots everything with that framing in this movie. So like even in the early scene where he gives Salma Hayek the like dry hump of a lifetime in her apartment, like that place is huge and she still shoots it with that wide angle lens and everything just looks bizarre. So even though it's kind of like a cheap digital movie that he like rushed through production, he still gives it a weird handheld digital sheen to it. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm on the hook for Soderbergh. I, I won't say he can do no wrong because we just watched this god-awful Meryl Streep movie he made for Netflix on this podcast recently. It was like one of the worst movies I've seen in years. What was it called? Uh, we just watched it like two weeks ago. Uh, it's called The Laundromat. Oh, uh, okay. It's like his version of The Big Short. And uh, it fe features Meryl Streep in two roles, uh, one white, one not. Oh. So I'll leave oh. that up to your imagination. Oh, no. I don't, I don't like the sound of that at all. No, it was very Steve bad. Steve, boy, uh, <laughs> don't do that. So I wouldn't say he can do no wrong, but I will say that I'm always interested in what he's doing, and I love that he experiments. Yeah, he does a lot of, lot of interesting stuff. And I think he's one of the ones that's like technically good at all of the roles of filmmaking because you know he started out real small and doing stuff like schizopolis and he yeah just knows how to do 
everything. It's wild. Well, I mean, the reason that Magic Mike XXL looks as beautiful as it does is because he was the cinematographer. And so technically he stepped out of the director role in his like first AD, uh, who usually does a lot of the, the cinematography and his stuff, took over the director's chair. Uh, but, you know, he still had his fingerprints all over that movie, and it still feels like a Soderbergh movie. Yeah. And this one also feels like a Soderbergh movie, but it feels like him, like I said, kind of throwing back to, like, old Hollywood farces in a way that I found very adorable in between the dance scenes, which still look great. And, you know, even his blocking in those dance sequences are, like, better than most modern directors would do it, where it's like, you would think that most people would know to show the dancer's entire body from head to foot so you can actually see what they're doing with their body but uh most people don't think about blocking that way and like cut off their dancers at the torso and if you pay attention to like just the framing of the dancers movement in magic mike's last dance it looks even more competently done than like you know a gigantic budget movie uh i'm thinking of like the adaptation of uh Les Mis that got shat on really badly in 2012 <laughs> where it's like a lot of close-ups on dancers from like the torso up and you can't even really see what their legs are doing which is kind of embarrassing Whither goes your majesty so fast? Unto the forest, gentle Mortimer to live in grief and baleful discontent for now my lord the king regards me not but dotes upon the love of Gaveston he claps his cheeks and hangs about his neck, smiles in his face and whispers in his ears. And when I come, he frowns as if to say, go whither thou wilt, seeing I have my Gaveston. Is it not queer that he is thus bewitched? So for this week, I had Ali and Brandon watch the 1991 Derek Jarman film, Edward II, uh, which is, of course, based on the Christopher Marlowe play from, you know, the distant, distant past. Uh, I guess the earliest that we can trace it to is 1587. And of course, uh, Marlowe was a contemporary and um, friend, occasional collaborator, possible frenemy of uh, who we know as William Shakespeare. Many of their like historical plays are drawn from the same like textual sources. And uh, this is one for which that is the case. Edward II is, of course, a play about the fall of the you know English monarch known as uh, Richard II, Edward. and it kind of speed runs through. Edward, did I say Richard? Yeah, I'm losing my mind over here. So it speed run, <laughs> it speed runs through the fall of uh, Edward II, uh, who, upon the death of his father, who was the you know King Edward I, immediately sends for um, what we know as a monarchical favorite. Uh, you might probably be most familiar with the term from the film The Favorite from a few years ago uh, with Rachel Weisz and Olivia Colman. Um, in the play, uh, Gaveston, who is the best friend, wink, of Richard II, he was banished um, by the previous monarch. And the first thing that Richard does whenever his father dies is to send for Gaveston to return. And then there's a lot of back and forth where everyone in the court hates Gaveston, at least, and in this film, kind of with good reason. Uh, and they plot to have him exiled multiple times. He leaves, he comes back, uh, but Richard never stops uh, loving him. Um, and in, uh, that's textually present, or 
rather subtextually present even in the play from the 16th century. But this film being made by Derek Jarman and made in 1991 um, during the AIDS epidemic, um, this one was made as even more of a protest. And in fact, Outrage, which was an AIDS activism group in England at the time, plays a pretty significant role as um, characters in sort of the not really the chorus of the film in the Greek traditional sense, but as the uh, day players who make up the bulk of Richard's supporters. Um, this movie makes that sexuality uh, textual, and it's it is it's a very uh, horny movie, and also like a really bleak one. And uh, what's really fun is that they use dialogue directly from the play. So it's set in sort of a, a timeless nowhere, that is 1991 based on like documentation that we see, but mostly takes place in featureless sets like a real play and lending it kind of a sense of timelessness. So it's the present and the past, you know, the persecution of a couple uh, by sort of a um, heteronormative, heterogeneous uh, society. Uh, what did y'all think about this one? I thought it was like for being in such a bleak nowhere, um, I thought it was really strikingly like beautiful and you know you're talking about it being a very horny movie but like I thought the way that um bodies were used like or the dances like there's so many dance sequences in this that are just I don't know gorgeous and I liked the mixing of the source material and taking source material like that and making it into you know whatever you want for the modern day because I think you know, there's a lot of just straight up adaptations of these early dramas and plays, but there's not, you know, it's almost like, what's the point unless you're going to add your own spin to it, you know? Yeah. And that playful anachronism is like a Jarman touch. My favorite movie from him is called Jubilee, and it's about Elizabeth I traveling into the future to mull about with like 1970s British punks. Um, he also did a version of The Tempest before this that um, is shot in a similar style, like no windows on these like closed sets where everything's like really artificial. Caravaggio was like a biopic he did before this that um, features small anachronisms. It's not quite as extravagant as this one is, where it's like, you know, someone like walks through the frame and has like a modern wristwatch or, you know, technology that wouldn't have existed when Caravaggio was working. And this, to me, is like kind of the platonic ideal of a Derek Jarman film. Like, it's not as challenging as stuff like The Garden or Blue, which were, you know, when he was further along in his health crisis with AIDS, his personal crisis with it, uh, and he was like really expressing grief over losing his friends and like losing function of his body in these like very abstract art films. This is still him being politically engaged with that thought and like what is happening to his community in modern times and like connecting it to an older world but it's still presented especially like for a bbc production of a christopher marlowe play it's still presented in like kind of a, um, a recognizable form where people can follow along you know like mm -hmm. uh it's it's not completely alienating to a, a wide audience um so if, if you're gonna watch a Derek jarman movie like this is a pretty platonic ideal of like this is what his art is like. I mean, and it may even be one of the better ones. Uh, not not just being like a distillation, but actually being like, you know, him at the height of his powers. But I'm, I'm prefacing all of that just to say, 
that even though you cannot read this movie in any way, that's not like Derek Jarman Artorism. Like he is the author of this piece. It is like so in line with like everything he did. To me, the real like shining beacon here is Sandy Powell's costume designs. And like she is a legend in the industry. She's been nominated for like endless awards. She got her start working with Jarman. Uh, he like suggested her that she do costume designs for like music videos and stuff, and then started actually like using her for his own films. And like every Tilda Swinton costume change in this movie is an oh, event. Yes. Uh, oh my god! Yes. yes. The sets are sparse, but the costumes are not. And I really feel like every gown that she puts Tilda in, every fascistic uniform she puts the cops in, the weird like smoking robes and ski masks that the uh, next Edward down the succession line wears. Like, I'm sure the two of them are collaborating on all these ideas and like how to bring modern fashion into this timeless void. But it really is like a showcase of what makes her special as a costume designer. And like, I feel like all of the high art and high camp of the movie kind of rides on her shoulders in a way that like, yeah, yes, you could say like, if you're going to watch a Derek Jarman movie, watch this one. But it's also like, if you want to see what Sandy Powell can do, it's like either this or Orlando uh, also with Tilda Swinton. Like those are the two. Also with with Tilda. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for our listeners who haven't seen it, when Brandon is saying like modern fashion, it's not contemporary to the nineties. It's a lot of like really elegant, like fifties, sixties, uh, sort of like cocktail dress and how, you know, style things All like gowns. that as yeah. you know, gowns and things like that. They're, they're contemporary to like the 20th century, but it's not like nineties high fashion. It's like fifties high fashion. And it is, it is gorgeous. And it's like a really good decision to like make the frame sparse mm-hmm. with decoration, but like Baroque with the, uh, costuming, like, I wouldn't have thought of that, but you're absolutely I mean, right. she doesn't need to be celebrated <laughs> any more than she has been. Like, I think she's pretty clearly, like, earned more accolades than most modern costume designers. But, like, she really, like, shows off here in every scene. I do have a bone to pick. Um, and this is, like, I wasn't going to bring it up because it is a personal pet peeve of mine. But it's the pearls. Um when she breaks the pearls and they all fall off the string, that's not supposed to happen if they're real pearls. I don't know if y'all knew this. <laughs> oh yeah, that's like a that's like a fiction trope. Yeah. They're not they're not on one long string like that. They're tied. Right. Yeah. And it always gets me every time. I'm like, ah But it's also <laughs> camp though, right? Like this this yeah, all costume it's, it's jewelry so and costume like thrift store clothing in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's beautiful. I just am like, I wasn't going to bring it up. I wasn't going to bring it up. But... <laughs> anyway. Speaking of the anachronism stuff too, like the thing that like really won me over was in the very first scene. It starts with Edward and um, Gaveston having this argument in bed um, while there are two men like fucking right behind them. And I just really like that immediately you get the full scope of what he's doing with this material. It's like, here's the Shakespearean era dialogue and men fucking <laughs> like here are these two ideas like smashed together yeah uh you know right yeah. in your face it's, that's not gaviston's not with richard in that scene though no edward yeah. it's um <laughs> oh my god edward's not in that scene with gaviston though it's their friend spencer mr Mitford. yeah yeah you know gaviston hires him to be um you know like his his friend and servant or whatever 
at the beginning of the film, and that's why he ends up like kind of hanging around. I, I will say in your defense for um, saying Richard instead of Edward, I did read that uh, Shakespeare borrowed, quote-unquote, lines from this for his play of Richard III. <laughs> so uh, those two works are connected in quite a literal way, where like, there are lines of dialogue that have been like reworked into the Shakespeare play. Oh, that makes sense. But yeah, I, I'm sorry I got the characters mixed up, but I just really like that uh, boldness of like, I'm going to spend BBC money on this, um, you know, Marlowe play production. I'm going to start it off with like naked men going at it in the background while the characters are, you know, reciting that dialogue. Yeah, you gotta. I only say it because, you know, we used to joke a lot about how we didn't have enough of an internet presence for people to get pedantic with us. Like back in our earlier episodes, we were like, mm, before someone comments that actually the curtains were red in this scene, we want to go ahead and make that correction ourselves. But then you sent me those messages this week from people. Apparently, we've made it because now we do have P-Dance in the comments. And I just was trying to save Ooh. us from from having to, you know, deal with that. We do? Yeah, oh, we've got man. a couple like, oh, I think you'll find if you go back that this character was, you know, not present for that conversation. It's like, who gives a shit? <laughs> yeah. and I mean, I guess we're supposed to, but yeah. Some of these texts, they're not explicitly clear. And I, what I also think is interesting sometimes is I'll read a review of something, you know, or go ahead to check something before I send it over to you, which is separate from proofreading. <laughs> but, um, and I'm like, I don't know, and this happens a lot, and and I think we've talked very briefly before, like, I will sometimes go to the TV Tropes page for something, and there's one person, one editor of that page who has interpreted something in a specific way, uh, they have this certain belief, and then they'll, there are various different tropes that are listed on that page where they'll reassert that belief or their interpretation of something or their interpretation of a relationship on every, like, link on that page. And I think that that can really influence the discourse where people are like, oh, yes, that's actually textual, when in fact it's just someone's interpretation and not, uh, you know, with, with a, a pretty severe lack of like appropriate editorial tone. And sometimes I think that's what happens. And when I can't distinguish it, I just go with what I felt watching the, the movie. So very specifically, I identified some characters as um, dating and not married in a certain thing. And I don't like there's one of them where I'm like, oh, yeah, that actually is obvious. And then there's another one where I'm like, mm, is that what that line of dialogue meant or is it not? And because it's sort of been canonized in the both like the Wikipedia plot summary and maybe someone else's review, that becomes how everyone interprets that scene. And that's a big problem, to be honest. But uh, I definitely do think that, you know, there are some corrections that I do need to make, but also... There's some things where I think we need to separate our interpretation of the events from the events. Themselves. I just find that kind of like detail oriented, like pedantry where you're really going over what happened as if like the job of reviewing the movie is the job of like summarizing a like synopsis of what like the actual events in the film. Not interesting to me. Like I think the vibes, the intent, the art direction, the mood, that is the stuff that like matters in this art form. Not the like the literal events, because uh, anyone can watch the movie and get that stuff, you know, or go to Wikipedia <laughs> if that's what you're interested in. And honestly, I'm I'm a little surprised by how receptive you were to this film because it's a very vibes movie, uh, and you, you're usually a little more plot oriented than I am. 
not not to say that there isn't a story yeah. here, but it's not like you're the main focus, you know. Yeah, it is very vibes. But the vibes here cuz I don't feel like it's as loose with plots with the vibes. Like I do feel like the vibes are Yeah, plot. the oh, people always say style over substance or whatever, and it's like no, style is substance. Like the movie is very yeah. political and judicious in how it applies that style and what it's saying with it. Exactly. Like this movie tells the story through what it shows and how it does the stuff. And I guess in that case, it's real art shit. But, you know, I love real art shit. I do know that, you know, for one thing, we've been doing this, not this podcast, but I'm coming up on, you know, writing for Swamp Flicks for eight years now. <laughs> and I was, I was much closer to my academic career then than I am now. And so there are definitely things where I was like, I prize plot over, you know, style and stuff that was a long time ago. And I've, I think I've changed both as a person who like enjoys and appreciates those movies. And as like, you know, my personal taste has, has changed and grown and I've grown as a person. So I will say that although that's something I might have expressed in the past, it's not as true as it used to be. But that doesn't mean it's I'm completely cured either. I still sometimes get very frustrated uh, narrative-wise when when certain things are um, more visual and vibey. Like, for instance, um, Tomahawks, Sex Kittens. What was it? Are you talking about Kamikaze Sex Hearts Tornado. <laughs> Kamikaze oh, Hearts. Oh, my yeah. God. Wait, what? <laughs> but not, not to, like, bring it up again and denigrate it, but, like, you know, that was definitely a vibes movie and there wasn't much narrative to it. And that was something that I didn't enjoy. So again, I, I haven't completely outgrown my biases. Well, full, full warning, the next movie I picked for us to talk about, I think is in the same vein, but uh, I'm not, I'm not picking it to like keep bringing this conversation up. Um, I do think this is a funny middle ground between last episode. Yeah. We were talking about what seems like kind of like a chore to you and I, and like a, a more academic right. text that's like about historical recreations like tree of wood and clogs feels like more of like a, okay, this is something I have to do to better my brain, not something I'm doing for fun. And for you, uh, the more pretentious art school interpretive dance style of uh, DIY <laughs> art, like something like maybe Kamikaze hearts is uh, more of a chore for you. And that's like an eat your vegetables movie. And it's funny to me that right. like Edward II is kind of both of those things. Like it's both classic literature and uh, just yeah. queer people yeah. making weird art in a room <laughs> with no windows. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that's, and I want to say, I think that that might be why I'm much more, not forgiving, but enjoyed this so much more. For one thing, you know, I, I we've talked about this before. I'm not outing myself for the first time, but I am, I, did, I was a theater kid. I wasn't, you know. You know, I, I did theater and stuff, and to me, plays are so much more gestural, right? Yeah. So when you have something that is a stage drama, you don't expect it to have the verisimilitude of film. That is kind of, I guess, what I was trying to say is the gestural thing. Like, I do feel like the style is very, like, there's a lot of motion and movement and people coming from stage right and stage left and walking in and the dogs and, like... The visual like symbolism isn't just artsy fartsy for no reason. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. the vibes are vibes, yes. But the vibes also have a clearer purpose. So I don't feel like it is like just Yeah, vibes. When, when Annie Lennox enters the frame 
not having been a character <laughs> in the movie and just sings a Cole Porter song um, as yeah, any Lennox and like a music video aside. It's jarring and it seems like it's like a for its own sake indulgence, but it actually like yeah. is a very like deeply sad, mournful moment. And if you watch her actual music video of that song, like she has this whole opening monologue about like how the government is ignoring the AIDS crisis. And like, I don't know, there's meaning to it. It's not just for its own sake. You just have to like trust the artist enough to think that they're, you know, doing something with that and not just like trying shit that's weird for weird yeah. sake. And and I, I, I do feel that. And to circle back, I, I don't think that every film has to have the same verisimilitude. I think that that's actually like a very thoughtless way to think about film in general. Like when we think about the birth of film, we are talking about a brand new art form that's less than 150 years old. And the first filmmakers were things that were very unlike traditional narratives in many cases. They were really like experiments with the format. And I think that as time has gone on, yes, we may have found new technologies to experiment with, but we're not as experimental with the actual text of the film as the filmmakers who were there at the media's inception were, conception. And so I do think that something was lost, like a lot was lost. You know, some people say that movies got ruined with the introduction of sound because that <laughs> did, I mean, it's sort of a ridiculous argument in some ways, but I understand the point oh. in others that it does reduce yeah. what a film can be to what we see it as now, that it's, you know, has it's the sound and the picture together and they form a narrative and sort of this loss of this more, not really psychedelic, but more experimental form of filmmaking. And if you look at like early television, like if you watch Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which I know I bring up all the time, whenever he does his introduction, he refers to those as plays. And many of them do feel very much like they're written for the stage because a lot of them have very few sets. There's never more than two or three locations. Many of them are like doubles from previous performances. So I, I think there's this weird merging that happened with the post Hayes Code, you know, what they could get away with more. The Hayes Code basically like took this beautiful flowering vine and strangled it for a while. And now everything that we have bears like the impact of that like violence against the art form. And I know that that's a long tangent to have, but I will say that because of that, in my mind, at least growing up in the way that I was trained and the way that I was educated, you give more deference to a play that's on a stage because you don't expect it to be like a movie. Uh, you, you don't expect there to be like this circle shot of the Avengers or what the fuck ever. Like it's just, you know, people on a stage performing and that's what this is. And it's at its core, it's also the earliest one of the, not the earliest because you know drama we date back at least to the greeks but it's a very old drama it's a very old play and so i think that i'm even more forgiving of that but the way that you can then use that and sort of overlay it onto this modern sensibility and give it this sort of like modernist reductivist stage presence I think that that's why I'm more forgiving of it being vibes over narrative, even though the narrative is strong. I do think it's like harder for movies to get respected for trying to mess with the form lately. Like, yeah. people love to decry pretension 
anytime something isn't a Marvel movie. Like, Martin Scorsese gets heat online from, like, teenagers every day of the week. (laughs) We all have to listen to it. (laughs) And he makes, like, the most accessible, wide audience movies out there. (laughs) Uh, So I do personally have, like, an affection for low-budget stuff where it's, like, there is a DIY let's put on a show quality to it, but it's actually trying to transcend budgetary restrictions and like kind of get to the poetry of the art form and like break through the limitations of what you're working with. And that's the stuff that really excites me. And I think very clearly this movie falls in that category as well, where it's like, we're we're working with this like very rigid text. That's not going to change. We're not going to mess with it. We're working with a pretty limited number of people. Like if you even look at some of behind the scenes footage of the cops clashing with the you know British equivalent of ACT UP, it's it's maybe like 40 people in that soundstage. It's not like a lot of people, but it, yeah. it's shot in a way that's like really pushing how to fill the frame with those bodies to make it look immense. And yeah, there's like a sort of acknowledgement of the artifice of like what they're working with and using that artifice in a very open, honest way to like create high art out of it. Uh, and it's not so stuffy and full of itself that you could even call it pretentious. Like it's obviously having fun with the material at hand, but it's also politically angry and like really looking for beauty uh, in the artifice as well. So I don't know. It's like kind of the total package of a film. Yeah. I was going to say it's kind of really an amazing movie. (laughs) Yeah. I watched it. I was like, Oh, this is a really good movie. So, you know, I loved it, but once again, I love that art. It's funny when we were trying to describe it, it earlier when Boomer picked it, yeah. I was like, I'm trying to think of like the closest thing I could come up with to link Darren Jarman to that we've discussed before. Was yeah, the Ken Russell version of Salome. And uh, looking up his um, resume earlier this week, uh, Derek Jarman got his start doing art direction and like production design. And one of the movies he worked on early on was Ken Russell's The Devils. And like that's kind of how he made a name for himself. I was like, okay, that all Fascinating. connects, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. And they really are, like, two of the best British filmmakers, um, at least since Powell and Pressburger. <laughs> like, they really excite me in a way that, like, very few British directors do. Two, two of my all-time favorites. I do find it very funny that a character's name in this movie was Gaveston. Because I, I, I just kept hearing it as, like, Galveston. Yeah. <laughs> Texas. All your exes are banished to Texas. <laughs> Uh, the the banishing in this, the, I I did look up, you know, there's so much about British history that like we as Americans are not taught, almost out of spite. Yeah. Even though like yeah. we're very like much of our cultural system comes from them, but there's a very like USA USA ness of it where until like Game of Thrones came out, I didn't really understand how complicated like secession rights could be. Oh, yeah. Like who the fuck knew that? Um, you know, I knew that there were wars over it, but it wasn't it wasn't something that like I really consciously understood how like valid you know how that there were so many rules about you know almost like blood quantums like it's really like ridiculous. And I was looking it up and like in this movie the um the the historical accuracy of it as far as like. Gaveston being um, exiled over and over again did happen. And that's so strange to me that they would just be like, yeah, you're the king and you got to get rid of your boyfriend by sending him out of the country. But then he could like manipulate the situation to get his boyfriend back. 
like the Bob Balaban movie. Um, <laughs> the thing that really blew my mind in that respect was that Edward was killed by having a red hot poker um, shoved up his or penis. was he, as what I was reading, is that there's some historians that believe that he escaped and was able to live and that the body they found wasn't and his that's body. the Derek Jarman um, spin on the material as well as yeah. like uh, he didn't want to see another gay man tortured to death so he does include that violent violation of his body as like imagery in the film but um, he you know doesn't actually succumb to that fate uh, in this version of the story and it's it's such a cruel method of execution too and one that is so clearly aimed at like you know, oh, you like you like right. buggery. Well, here you go. We're gonna actually bugger you to death. Awful. And very pointed yeah. for like when the movie came out because I think there were a lot of like basically rehashes of the kinds of laws that got Oscar Wilde sentenced to prison. Just like basically yeah. making it illegal again to be homosexual in public in any way. So like. The movie was kind of um, bringing all of these like older homophobic actions of the state back up to modern times, and especially for the AIDS era, being like, well, not much has actually changed. The state has always been violent in this way. And, you know, we uh, over here are now seeing laws where it's basically illegal to be trans in Yeah, public. same as it ever was. Yeah, fucking time is a flat circle. I will say in one way that the movie actually is maybe more daring than a lot of like modern media about gay life is, is that like Gaveston's allowed to be a little bit of a shit. Yeah! <laughs> uh, you know, you would think this like repeated banishment of him from the kingdom for like homophobic reasons would be like... Of course, you would want them to be just be like well-intentioned romantic lovers who are like you know very benevolent and you know it's it's a cruelty that the world does not understand their love and banishes this man over and over again because people just find it icky that they're together. But really, he's also kind of like an imperfect bully, <laughs> and like yes. he's allowed to be a messy little bitch. Uh, and I, I like that about it. Like it's it's not taking away his humanity to like make him a martyr. If the movie has any kind of, like, pithy, modern reading that, like, most people could connect to beyond the sort of old-timiness of it, it's, like, that feeling when you love someone that everyone else finds super annoying and wants to go away oh forever. Yes, that was, <laughs> yes. That was something that was so fascinating about this, because Gaveston is awful. <laughs> like, he's, like, he has, he has, this was a strange thought that I kept having throughout this movie, but he has a facial structure that would be absolutely perfect for Buffyverse vampirism. <laughs> like he has the forehead that is made for that like ridge section. And he really does not give a fuck about what anybody thinks about him, but not in a way that's very endearing in a way where you're like, I can, I guess I see the appeal, but if I had to deal with you on a day-to-day -day basis, I would also want you to leave the country. Right. <laughs> And he specifically, like, torments Tilda Swinton, you know, as oh Edward's God. wife. Like, she wants to fuck <laughs> very badly. And he, like, uses yeah. that to his advantage to embarrass her. So, like, he makes it personal yeah. for her to, like, want to banish him as well. I've never seen someone use so much sneer acting <laughs> in a single film as is in this one. There's so much sneering. Everything is a sneer. And in a way, you're like, yeah, I kind of get how that would be hot. 
if I were Richard II. But it, it's true that, you know, a lot of us do have like that one friend that nobody else likes <laughs> that or that, you know, makes other people uncomfortable or annoys the hell out of them. And you just can't stop loving that person, you know, just because uh, your other friends are like, please don't ever bring them to a party <laughs> in my house again. Yeah. And that's just this writ large. And it's it is very funny because it's interesting how much like influence the court has over being like, we refuse to let you get dicked down <laughs> or do any dicking down. We absolutely and utterly refuse. Yeah, because later they banished Spence and Spence didn't do anything. Yeah. No, that guy was. The same. Yeah, it's not. It's not like it's not a homophobic act of the state. Uh, it's also that, <laughs> but Gaveston is also a shit. <laughs> kind of provokes yeah. everybody. A- another piece of commentary. I don't know if y'all read this this way, but like the final image of the next Edward down the lineage sitting on the cage of his parents. Oh my! Gosh. After Edward has been murdered or you know dethroned, at least. I thought that was kind of like, I, maybe I was reading too much into this, but like the symbolism of that, of being like, you can try to banish homosexuality or stomp it out with this military or, you know, do this or that, but like, it still just kind of occurs naturally in children and like, will prop yeah. up again. And there's a lot of images of that young child wearing his mother's lipstick and earrings. He gets yeah. the Sandy Powell treatment. Yeah, I also, yeah, I think that that was purposely the uh, the reading to go with is great yeah it, it is an interesting like commentary and again connected to what we're dealing with right now where we're talking about just making sure that no one ever like trying to prevent us like an upcoming generation from ever knowing that there were queer people before but you have to be like either completely brain dead or just a real bad faith actor to think that not knowing gay people exist is going to stop anybody from being gay. Cause I can tell you straight up that was, you yeah. know, uh, that straight. there's not a, there's not a, you know, the culture that we grew up with was so straight, you know, every film was so straight. Every romantic pairing was so straight on TV and film. And I didn't stop this entire current generation of knowing something about themselves, despite the influence of like a conservative movement to keep them from knowing anything about themselves. It's not going to work. And they were trying to do it in 1991. And in fact, many people were cheering on the mass death of gay men because they thought that meant that that would be the death of gay men as a concept. But clearly that's not, it wasn't then and it won't be now. And it never can be throughout time. I do like that the movie ends on that defiance though. It's like, uh, the state doesn't get to win. It doesn't get the final word. This will yeah. continue on no matter how much they violently stamp it out. There's something like really inspiring about that politically, especially like since this uh, doom and gloom cycle has come back around full circle again in the 2020s. And we didn't even mention this yet, but it also is once again like holding up a mirror to reflect that like the people who are doing the fascist stomping out they're also, you know, what they do behind closed doors, they want that to be private. Most of which is not as loving or tender as anything that happens between Edward and Gaveston. <laughs> Edward slash Richard. There is something interesting about the fact that, like, clearly the people who want to stamp it out the most are the ones who are most embarrassed about what they're doing behind closed doors and they're taking it out on others. 
same as it ever was. Personally, I think it's very wholesome and sweet to have three women drive uh, leather high heel shoes on my back and neck while leading me around on a leather belt collar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I've seen that in, in my favorite Rockwell paintings, yeah. that's for sure. <laughs> well, as always with selections on the show, you can watch Edward II on the Criterion channel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I will continue that streak the next time we talk as well. Uh, it sounds like we all heartily recommend this film. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And next week, uh, we're talking about Terrence Malick. Uh, and only one of the movies we're discussing is on Criterion, and it's leaving at the end of the month, uh, Days of Heaven. And the rest I had to get through my public library, so I didn't have to give money to um, a film-watching project that I don't appreciate. I really fucking hate Malick. <laughs> and I hate that James is making me go through this. But uh, hopefully there'll be more positive voices in that conversation. Uh, and it won't all be a chore. Love is a danger of a different kind. Take it.